Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This might be the one time I'm speechless. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Could you double check the envelope? And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Thank you, life. Thank you, love. You guys are just standing up because you feel bad that I fell, and that's really embarrassing, but thank you. This is nuts. It's a tie. I'm the king of the world. And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... Gentlemen, my only object of being here is to try and get out of What shall I go? What shall I do? Welcome to the next Best Picture podcast. Oscar goes to... Okay, Coda. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 312 of the next Best Picture podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. Time of recording is 11.06 a.m. on September 25th, 2022. Here to join me for this week's episode, I have Lauren LaMagna. Hello. Nadia Dalamonte. Hello. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Will Mavity. Hello, hello, hello. And so we are heading into the New York Film Festival this week. Uh, Press screenings begin officially tomorrow with Friday being the opening night film for White Noise. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, NYFF and how it's going to help uh, certain films, uh, especially because there are no world premieres this year um, outside of Till and She Said. Uh, So we'll talk about those and how they fit into the Oscar race, but how certain films that premiered at Venice can, they might get a resurgence here from the festival. Obviously, we have a lot of other award season news to discuss this week. I will save that for the fan questions section when we get to the end, because I'm sure a lot of people have lots of questions about some of the uh, wild developments in the Oscar race this week. Oh, did something happen this week? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, there's so much to discuss here. And then um, we have three trailers to talk about for Bardo, Strange World, and for Knock at the Cabin. And then we're also going to go over the polls. But before we get to any of that, let's talk about what everybody saw this week. Starting off with Will Mavity. Well, uh, one of the things I saw this week I can't talk about because it's under embargo. But uh, hint, hint, it will be at uh, New York. 
Yeah, so uh, can't talk about one of them. Uh, also saw Confess Fletch, which I had zero expectations for. Um, it was just on one of those you can rent it now on Prime Video things concurrently with its theatrical release. It's actually really funny. Like I, I, I was shocked. It, it made me laugh a lot. It's, it's pretty damn good. John Hamm, you know, he's at his most funny and charming. And it has a lot. Uh, it has a lot of just funny, absurdist comedy moments. It almost reminded me of like the Zucker Brothers films, you know, like uh, Airplane and Hot Shots. There's a scene with um, what's her name? She co-wrote Bridesmaids with Kristen Wiig, uh, Annie Momolo. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a scene involving her that just killed me with its um, exchanges of dialogue, and then something visually that would happen that would contradict that. So uh, I I really enjoyed that, and I hope more people see it. You know, it's it's nice just to get a a just good, solid, straightforward comedy that is this amusing. Um, but in terms of new releases, those I, I've seen older stuff that isn't worth discussing in the podcast this week. But uh, those <laughs> were my my two new releases this week that I think are worth singling out. Okay, all right, Nadia Dalamonte. You still have more stuff from TIFF to report. Uh, you saw, out of all of us, even myself, uh, the most films. So anything you care to share with us this week? Definitely. I, so I saw 32 films Oof. in 10 days. Okay, so I lied. I think I have you beat by like two or three. But, <laughs> but she, way. Is, she is pushing my Neglia numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting the hours in. Um, so this week, this week itself has been very quiet. But yeah, as you said, Matt, I did go to TIFF. So I've had a very, very lively past couple of weeks covering the festival in Toronto. So I saw a great range of films from Glass Onion to Bros, which I absolutely loved. Um, Smaller gems like Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter, which was a very spooky, haunting mother-daughter story. Um, I won't go through all the 32 films that I've seen, um, (laughs) but I wanted to highlight three big favorites that... um, have been staying with me for these past few weeks. And one of them is Broker yeah, by Hirokazu Kureda, which is a story about broken people and broken families and just that sense of togetherness and community that can be born out of that. I was so deeply attached to the characters. And I remember feeling at some point, I just want everybody in this movie to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> the interconnected storytelling was so well done. And I think... It was crafted in such a way that I couldn't pinpoint which moment made me cry. It just kind of hit me unexpectedly. And Same. I loved that part. I loved the way it was done. It was just such a special, special film. And it probably is my favorite if I had to choose out of everything that I've seen at TIFF. Broker wow. is up there. Um, my second highlight that I want to shout out is The Banshees of Inishirin. Fucking great. Beckin, great. New <laughs> McDonough. I, I, I am due for an Imbruge rewatch, but again, this, I mean, this film is likely my favorite of his so far. It's such a simple story, but it's told in such an unpredictable and exciting, quietly exciting way. It's about this lonely person trying to figure out why his close pal won't speak to him anymore. And Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson bring so much to that dynamic. Farrell, Colin Farrell especially. There's so many layers to his performance. He's had such a great 
banner year. And this is just, this tops everything that he's done already this year. And it's, it's already been great work. And the film itself is hilarious. It's it's such a great time to have with an audience. I laughed throughout the entire time and just had a great, great experience with that. So I can't wait for more and more people to see that one. And the third one that I want to highlight is Women Talking by Sarah Pauly, mm. which I know more people will be seeing at the New York Film Festival very soon. It's a very, it's a heavy story and it's an emotional one. It exists in the realm of fable. It's very much about what the title tells you, women talking, weighing the pros and cons of leaving or staying or staying and fighting in this environment of abuse. And it's also about men listening and taking notes. And I had the opportunity to hear from Sarah Polly, who attended our screening. And we had a really interesting Q&A afterwards about how the book adaptation came to life and it was, it's definitely an on-screen experience that will um that will stay with me so those three films really stood out from the from the mass that i've seen over the past couple weeks just out of curiosity uh got a couple of follow-up questions here did the cinematography of women talking bother you because i've talked to some people where it does and other people it doesn't because it, it definitely is in keeping with like the thematic ideas of the movie so it's an artistic deliberate choice but i just know some people were put off by it what, what did you think i i personally wasn't put off by it i i, I did notice it at first but honestly it, it i feel like it kind of it was in keeping with what directions sarah Polly wanted to go in very much about this conversation to the point where i didn't really notice it anymore yeah and Sarah Polly actually brought up um, a point about that. She had initially wanted to shoot in black and white, but um, she, once she saw what that looked like, she felt that it didn't work with the conversation-heavy aspect of the film. So they kind of played around with this, with this, what they ended up with. And yeah, it wasn't really, I wasn't really bothered by it. I wasn't, it's definitely not something that I was thinking about by the end. Sure. And who is your MVP of this really incredible cast? Because I, I will be hard pressed to find a better ensemble this year than what's in this film. Yeah, that's it's it's really hard because they're all so they all work so well together and it's so hard to pinpoint one person. But if I had to choose, it would most likely be Claire Foy. Okay. She has some big scenes and she just absolutely nails it. Yeah, I mean, for myself, I I definitely thought a lot about Foy, Buckley, and Wishaw, but mm. the performance that's actually staying with me and is creeping up in my mind even more so to the point where I'm starting to wonder, holy crap, could we be looking at three supporting actress performances is actually Rooney Mara's. Yeah. Well, aren't there, uh, it's rumored that they're going to push her lead just to kind of <laughs> just space. I mean, it's not category fraud per se, because she is the audience surrogate in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it would be I still think it would be a little bit of a mistake because it is a true ensemble film where, you know, if you ever do divulge from the group to see anybody's perspective, um, it is hers the most, I would argue. But you know, Jesse Buckley gets a few scenes where she's on her own. So does Ben Wishaw. And so 
it's tough to say. Like I, I really personally believe it is a true supporting across the board ensemble. But you know, opinions will range on that. Uh, and then my only ever follow up question I have for you, uh, Nadia, based on what you were uh, describing for Banshees of Inisherin, I'm pretty confident that Carrie Condon, Farrell, and Gleason are in the conversation for their respective awards categories. Uh, and Gleason will go supporting and Colin will go lead. Uh, how do you feel about Barry Keoghan now? Hmm. You know what? I, I think it, it will really depend on how much love that film gets because right. he was hilarious in it. Yeah, he's so funny. Yeah, he was so entertaining to watch. And that entire, <laughs> all of the dynamics with his character were so, so fun to watch. So I really think it comes down to how where we'll see the film is and how the category itself is looking in that supporting actor category for him to kind of not carry the coattails of, of Brendan Gleeson because they're both really, really good in their own right. But um, I think it really will come down to how the film itself performs and if he will be kind of swept up along the way. Well, we'll see. I mean, of those films that you mentioned, two of them, Women Talking and Banshees of Inisherin, are my current screenplay predicted winners. So It'll be interesting to see, like you said, as more people see them over the next couple of weeks, uh, how far they continue to go in this year's awards race. Uh, let's kick it over next to Lauren LaMagna. So, yeah, today, this week was a really fun week. Um, I am, for starters, James Cameron's number one fan. So I had to go back and see Avatar, <laughs> particularly because my friend actually like mentioned that he never saw it. And I was like, oh, we're seeing it now because there's just something... I don't know. There's something about seeing, you know, a James Cameron epic back in IMAX 3D the way it was intended. And it's just it's a damn good movie and it's an epic and I can't wait to go back. And it's been really interesting to watch um, people discover Avatar for the first time all these years later and being like, oh, yeah, it actually is good. Um, So that's been like a fun, interesting perspective. It's kind of like I don't have a good analogy, but it's kind of like. and a middle-aged Italian having pasta for the first time. I mean, shocked at how good it is. So <laughs> it was just like, everyone's like, oh yeah, Avatar. It's a really good movie. And we were just like, we've just, we've been saying it. So that was really fun just to see um, the spectacle back in the format. It's been telling, because even though it's a great movie, there is something about seeing it in either an IMAX or a 3D setting that just makes it so much better. I was going to say, because the critical... Uh, feeling towards that movie over the last couple of years seems to have been like, oh, it's overrated. It's not as good as I remember it being, especially now that 3D has like kind of faded and so on and so forth. But like once people re-experience it and actually do watch it again in a theater setting, I, I have noticed that there has been almost like this. I don't want to say like repraisal, but definitely there is still genuine love for that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been very much up and down with people's perception of Avatar with, you know, the papyrus and the sequels getting pushed back a literal decade. It's been very it's been weird. So but it's it's nice that people are actually, you know, tr- it's been enough time that people kind of forgot all about that noise and are now just seeing the film and being like, oh, yeah, you know, Jim Cameron knows how to make a movie. <laughs> and um, I love that blue loving, water loving Canadian so much. So I will always go back to the theater when he releases all of his movies because he does. Um, I also rented um, funny pages on Amazon this week, which is like a really like small, like 
it's if if the Safdie brothers made a coming of age story and they actually produced it. So that was, that was like a fun nod when I saw that on the call list and I was like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. And it's a young kid in like New Jersey trying to become a cartoonist and just realizes, you know, tough life lessons. And it was, I really loved the sense of humor. It's very much, you know, an East coast. I can't get like a good break anywhere and just learning lessons after each other, after each other, just really hard, brutal ways. But you can't help but laugh, which is just like a testament to the screenplay and to the actors at hand. So if you're really into, you know, those screwball, dark comedies, I really do recommend that. The third act of that movie is so stressful to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Perfectly keeping in line with Safdie Brothers tradition. Yeah, when I saw them on like produced by, you know, Josh Mani Safdie, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And I was yeah. just like, there we go. <laughs> and then um, I also caught Do Revenge on Netflix, which, you know, keeping in line with my dark comedy week, I guess. It was too good. Like, I didn't expect it to be as good as it was. And it's, I recommend it to everyone, especially for, you know, that young audience out there that's obsessed with, you know, the old like rom-coms from the early 2000s. It's so online with that. And just as a girl who champions contemporary costumes, especially in this time of the year, has some of the best costumes in film this year. And it was just hysterical and witty and smart and just a really, really good time. So please check that out on Netflix. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm hoping to get to that actually later today. I've heard so many great things about it. It genuinely shocked me at how good it was. Yeah. Awesome. Josh Parm. So there were a few things that I caught up with throughout this week. Uh, I did finally see see how they run, which I thought was fine. Like, it, I don't think it's a great movie, but it was enjoyable for what it was. It, it's a very cute film. I think it gets a little too cute towards the end. Um, and the mystery is sort of whatever. But, uh, you know, it, it was a fun little movie that I don't think is too memorable. But I had a good time while I was watching it, I would say. Can I just say really quick that with the French Dispatch and this, I absolutely love character actor, dark comedic Adrian Brody so much. Yeah, I think he is turning into one of those people that we tried to make a leading man, didn't really work, and he's much better as a supporting actor in the background. And yeah, he has a lot of good scenes in that movie, too. Like the scene where he does the storyboards is so yeah. funny to me. <laughs> yeah, it was a good movie. I, like I said, not a great one, but it was enjoyable in the moment. Do you think Saoirse Ronan will get that Golden Globe comedy musical nod? I mean, why not? Feels kind of weak at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so that might happen. Uh, I also saw Sydney, the new documentary about Sydney Poitier, which and that was another one I felt was just OK. It's got a lot of interesting information in it for sure. But I think the problem is just that it's very surface level. It does not really get into the m- deeper complexities about his life and career. And that was kind of frustrating. So, it, you know, if you just want to see a celebration of him and his work, then this will do it for you. But if you're looking for anything more substantial. This is not the documentary. So it was fine. I enjoyed it, but it's not a great piece of work, in my opinion. Uh, I also caught up with an older movie that I had never seen before, and it was a blind spot that I wanted to take care of. And for the first time, I saw Purple Rain. Oh, I yeah, I had seen pieces of this movie before, but I was just scrolling on HBO Max and I saw it was there. So I was like, let me finally watch this. And uh, the music is great. The movie is terrible. 
I, I think this is one of those situations where you kind of had to be there in the 1980s for this movie because the writing and the acting are rather atrocious. But, you know, you're not watching it for that. You're watching it for the music. And Prince is like my favorite musical artist of all time. So I appreciate that aspect of it. But, yeah, the, the movie was not great. But um, I'm just glad to have erased it off of my my watch list finally. Nice. Good. Uh, and then the last thing that I want to mention is that I did catch up with Athena on netflix and um yeah that that movie really pulls no punches you press play and 30 seconds later you are fully into a very stressful situation and it does not let up and the filmmaking is incredible in this movie like there are some sequences that i honestly do not know how they were able to accomplish it it is just mind-boggling to me uh, the script is where I have issues with it. It's a very thin story that you don't really get a whole lot of characterization. And I think that becomes a problem towards the end of the movie where we have to get more emotionally invested in what's going on. And we just really haven't gotten that from the narrative, but it's still a good movie. I would still recommend people see it if only for just these incredible set pieces. But I was a little let down by the writing to the movie, but overall I still found it to be a pretty captivating experience. I was talking with Josh about this offline and I was like, how can it be possible that like this might be my favorite action film of the year? <laughs> I, there, like I said, there's some sequences that are just unbelievable in terms of how they pulled it off. Yeah, some of the tracking shots. I mean, the opening shot alone goes on for what, 11 minutes or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really, really insane. And I I keep asking myself, like, what was the fireworks budget on this movie? Because (laughs) the amount of Roman candles that get shot off. Jesus Christ. Uh, I I do have some issues with the story as well. Um, I actually thought the uh, the lead uh, actor in it, though, uh, both of them actually did a really, really good job of getting you emotionally invested early. It's just a shame that the screenplay didn't provide enough, like really enough context uh, yeah. it, it, it really is a movie where it kind of just thrusts you into the main action of the moment and doesn't really fill in a lot of gaps. And you're kind of forced to do that as a viewer. Uh, but I would recommend watching it just for its technical mastery because it really is impressive on a filmmaking level uh, and just for the, the thrill ride of it all. Oh, yeah. And it's like really lean. I think it's like 96 minutes. So it's a pretty short movie. But yeah. I think you feel that in the story that they have like stripped out all you know sort of all the surrounding details which i kind of wanted in the movie to be honest like it it's great for this technical showcase and i was very much riveted by that but i did want a little bit more from the story and characters all right anything else uh the only other thing is that i did also see avatar in imax and it was an incredible experience and just to add on to that they did show a little bit of the new film that's coming out and uh that footage looked incredible like i don't know how anything is else is going to win visual effects of the oscars except for avatar 2 so i am very much looking forward to that all righty so for myself pretty packed week overall uh like will mavity i too saw an NYFF film that I am under embargo for, so I cannot mention it. All I will say is that uh, we have a Best Actress contender on our hands here. So fill in the gaps with that with whatever you please. Uh, Amsterdam. Ah, Amsterdam. David O. Russell. Oh, what a mess. (laughs) This was not... uh, This was not not good. Um, 
such a big cast and you know he's working with Emmanuel Lubezki this time around but it just feels like Lubezki's style is at odds with what David O. Russell has done previously with movies like The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle. It just didn't feel like the right pairing uh, between the two, especially for the type of story that it's uh, trying to show here. Christian Bale, you know, he attempts to do like quirky comedy with it, uh, but I don't ever really think it actually lands well. And Margot Robbie and John David Washington have very little to no chemistry together in this as a romantic pairing. So I was pretty let down by this one overall. Uh, there'll be more thoughts to come on that in the future. Goodnight Oppie was a movie that I missed at Telluride. Uh, I've been watching a lot of documentaries over the last week, uh, mostly because I'm on the uh, Critics' Choice uh, nominating committee this year. And this was a very sentimental, crowd-pleasing film that celebrated the power of human ingenuity and discovery uh, as we followed the Mars rover's spirited opportunity on a really uh, just odds-defying, incredible journey, their uh, mission on Mars to uncover, I mean, really any sense of discovery, uh, but what they ended up actually uncovering was that there was once water on Mars, which can then lead into answering the question of, is there intelligent life uh, beyond our world? And it's really, really inspiring stuff. Uh, it has a very lovely score. The visual effects by, in this movie by ILM is like some of the most extensive I've seen for a documentary for quite some time because they have to recreate all these shots of the robots going around on Mars. It's not like they had a camera and they were shooting these robots for real. So that's very impressive. And it's something that I think, uh, considering that Welcome to Chechnya got so close, you know, possibly to a, a Best Visual Effects nomination making the Bake Off a couple of years ago, maybe Goodnight Oppie could also be a documentary that goes that far too. So that'll be an Amazon release. So all of you will get a chance to check that out at some point. Can't wait for that one. Uh, and then also too, just continuing the doc conversation, um, I saw so many this week, but I'm going to just like single out one more, another Telluride, uh, documentary also playing in NYFF, might I add, uh, is Senior, which is a movie about, uh, Robert Downey Sr., uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s father. This is directed by Chris Smith. First of all, it is super lean. It is 89 minutes long. And it celebrates the life and career of Robert Downey Sr., um, a, a director that, quite frankly, I'm not sure if anyone here has actually seen any of his films before. But the movie does go into quite a bit of detail about his filmmaking style, uh, how it was very counterculture to what other filmmakers were doing at the time, how it also impacted uh, Junior and led to his own like substance abuse issues that he went through. But the thing about the movie that makes it actually really good is that Robert Downey Jr. and the director, Chris Smith, and Senior are all collaborating together, kind of finding their way through this documentary filmmaking process to really ultimately uncover, well, what is this movie actually about? And the movie shows that behind the scenes footage of them actually having these discussions of them like preparing how they're going to shoot certain takes. And so you get a really candid, uh, intimate look at the relationship between father and son, subject and filmmaker, and also just a collaboration process of putting together a movie. And in the process of doing that, Junior is reckoning with what 
his relationship with his father ultimately is as his father uh, comes to the end of his life because he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And obviously, when you're diagnosed with that, you have a certain life expectancy. Um, And so Junior knew that his father was probably coming to the end soon. And they started uh, shooting this, I think, like three years ago. So throughout the course of the documentary, his father's also deteriorating. And, you know, there's like one scene where Junior's... um, I can't believe like he allowed this to be filmed, but like he's like talking with his therapist about like his, you know, relationship with his father and trying to truly understand him and coming to grips with the fact that he's going to lose him soon. It's just very, very intimate and personal in a way that I was not expecting, but also really sweet and funny. It's shot in black and white. Um, I can definitely see why this was a Telluride selection. And it's not just because Robert Downey Jr. is attached to it and he's going around along with uh, his wife, Susan, to the Q and A's and presenting it at NYFF and things like that. Like the movie is really, really good. Well, this was not really on my radar initially, but given what you were talking about it, it it is definitely popped up now. Uh, I echo everything that Nadia said about broker. Um, Even though it will not be probably nominated for any Oscars at this point. I mean, you know, I don't want to say that definitively. It still could. Um, I cried. (laughs) <laughs> and Korea just has like this really incredible way of eliciting empathy for his characters. And they're all wonderfully p- played here by this ensemble. And then the last thing. Oh, yeah. Guys, to my shock, my absolute shock. I cannot believe that Hocus Pocus 2 was actually good. <laughs> <laughs> that is music to my ears. I have been nervous and I'm just glad they didn't fumble it. Oh my gosh, it just has the same tone as the original film, but it's so committed to it. And the jokes are actually funny. Uh, They're not, would I ever consider it as like high art? Absolutely not. Do I consider it to be a really good time, especially if you have seen the original and you have any kind of attachment to it whatsoever? Absolutely. The Sanderson sisters are back. And they have not skipped a beat here. They are relishing in the opportunity to revisit these characters and the playfulness that they all just have with one another as they, I mean, like, I was reminded of so many moments from the original film as a kid watching it, but also, too, just seeing these three actresses uh, just clearly having such a good time. You can't but help have a good time as well. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, and uh, that, that'll do it for me for this week. Uh, good opening here. Lots of films to talk about. Uh, very exciting. And we've got more films to talk about here. Uh, New York Film Festival kicks off this week on September 30th. It will run until October 16th. So obviously over the next couple of weeks, we'll have uh, more chiming in from myself, Dan Baer, Tom O'Brien. And we'll be talking about some of the films uh, that we're seeing over there. I do want to ask this question up front. White Noise is the opening night film from Netflix. It already premiered at Venice. What is everyone's take right now on what the reception to that film has been so far, where it currently fits in the Oscar race? And do we think that NYFF will help push it further or do we think it will get worse reviews, same kind of reviews? What do we think? 
Yeah, I mean, right now it just seems like the word on it is pretty, like, mostly positive, but nothing extraordinary. And it, I don't know, I just sort of feel like that's going to continue. At the moment, I really only have it in adapted screenplay in terms of my predictions. And that's mostly just because that category is very thin right now. So I, I don't really think it's a big player at this point basically what josh was saying i think it is almost entirely disappeared from the discussion part not because it's not good but just because everything else went to multiple festivals basically and this was just one and done at venice and then it's just disappeared well but i want to push back on that just ever so slightly because tar is playing at nyff as well uh, and it's only played a Telluride so far. Oh, that's a lie, Venice. Never mind. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She won Best Actress Ask at Venice. At what she has now. <laughs> Sorry, Will. You're you're right. You you are right. Yeah. I mean, other than I'm trying to think if there's anything else that does fit that description. No. Uh, Bardo, I guess. Bardo only went to Venice and Telluride. So yeah. I mean, very few films have only gone to uh, two. But yeah, White Noise is one of them. You're right. Uh, what do we think about All the Beauty and the Bloodshed? Being the centerpiece film, it's now the Golden Lion winner over at Venice. Uh, do do you all think it's the documentary frontrunner at this time? Oh, I did. And then didn't you see it and you kind of gave it a eh review? I mean, it's a 7 out of 10 from me. I still do think it is good. And I've talked to some people who obviously are a little bit higher on it than I am. Uh, my big criticism about it is one that I'll get into when I write my like official review a little bit more. But ultimately... It's telling two stories and it intercuts back and forth between the two as the uh, documentary progresses. I would have preferred if it was just told in chronological order. Um, I think it would have been a little bit more impactful if it had been done that way. And so it's a very, very minor criticism and it's one that I don't hear so many other people echoing as much. Um, I also think, too, I fell victim of the fact that it was probably a little overhyped for me heading in. So there's that to consider as well. But you would still probably say it's one of our major players for documentary feature, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, definitely have it in your five. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm hearing really good things about um, Descendants. So I don't have all the beating and the bloodshed as, you know, the top front runner at the moment. But I am hearing really good things about um, Descendants. And also Navali is starting their um, campaign. And that is something that I think can get a lot of passion very quickly and be that passion documentary that just goes all the way. 100% agreed with that. Especially if it's it's on something like HBO Max where you could just watch it right now. Mm. Yeah, I, I will admit that Descendant played so well at Sundance. And it is definitely, in my opinion, one of the major documentary contenders that we have uh for this year i think it's showing again at nyff is a really brilliant move to bring it back into the conversation so right now actually as of this time descendant is actually my current number one choice for documentary feature um i'll be curious to see how that and all the beauty and the bloodshed play at nyff and we'll see like where those two films go from there but whatever documentary that's playing at nyff that i would really ask people to give a shot with is all that breathes uh this was another sundance title that actually won the grand jury prize for documentary world cinema and it is a movie about uh two brothers uh who basically have this uh, i want to call it like almost like a like a like a bird's community like ecosystem in uh new delhi 
And it's a look at climate change on a very like micro level. Um, it's beautifully shot. Uh, some of the best cinematography I've seen in a documentary this year. Uh, so that's the one I would say that I don't hear many people talking about, but I would definitely keep an eye on it as we push forward this season. I really want to see that one. Uh, and then the closing night film is The Inspection, which had its world premiere at TIFF. Uh, so, Nadia, I know you saw that uh, at TIFF. Uh, what can you tell us about that film? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely very powerful. I will say Jeremy Pope, who um, is the leading actor in that film, he gives such an extraordinary performance. And I really hope that he gets some kind of recognition somewhere because he really carries the film. I think the film itself is a little uneven in its editing and its pacing, but he really brings it together with that performance. Yeah, I am heavily considering him for the best actor conversation. I just need to see it for myself to know for sure. Uh, because I've heard that the movie around him may not be strong enough, but everyone I've talked to who has watched it has said that he is absolutely extraordinary. So I don't, I'm not there yet. Like I'm almost leaning more towards he'll get like critics groups prizes for like breakthrough actor as opposed yeah. to best actor. But there's still a lot of directions that that could go. How's the score from the band Animal Collective? It's pretty good. It's not very memorable. I, I do. It, it is pretty good, but it's not. I wouldn't consider it to be one of the standout scores of the year. Gotcha. So yeah. Yeah. And the fests have had a lot of really good scores, as I'm sure Matt will expound upon. Oh, there's so many good scores from Tiff. I mean, like too many, way too many. <laughs> I need so many of those scores back in my life again, please. Because, yeah, I feel like I was definitely spoiled. Also, too, uh, Armageddon Time is going to be playing at NYFF. I, it played at Telluride, and it got a much better reception at Telluride than uh, it did at Cannes. I, it, but I also want to like preface by saying that it didn't get a bad reception at Cannes. It just wasn't like announced as a like best picture contender or anything like that. But I still do think that there is a world where this movie could land in supporting actor, maybe a screenplay um, a nomination for James Gray. Like I would not count this movie out yet to be a player in certain categories, especially with focus features behind it. Yeah, I definitely think that there's still some room for that movie to, to land. I actually really think it could still get in for screenplay. Especially considering how much like respect James Gray, I think, has amongst the filmmaking community. Exactly. And it could be like the consolation prize for the movie. It's like, here's your finally your first nomination. And I, I do see a world where that could happen, even though original screenplay is very competitive this year. That might be a narrative that could stick for the film. Then we also have uh, Till making its world premiere at NYFF, one of the few films that is making a world premiere there this year. Uh, so what's everyone's read on that film at the current time? Uh, because, you know, Daniel Deadweiler, I know, has been in a lot of our predictions uh, for Best Actress. She was really impressive in The Harder They Fall. And this is looking like it's going to be the role that changes her career uh, forever. So uh, what's everyone's read on this film at this current time? Just Best Actress for me at the moment. I have to see how well that movie plays in general. But at at this current time, I really only have it in for Best Actress. Yeah, I mean, my thing is that, as Josh mentioned, Adapted is so weak that basically 
anything that's even decent and is an adapted screenplay at this point has to be considered a contender at least. Uh, so I, I think that's the only other spot I would say it's really on my radar. The other world premiere that I know that a lot of us have our eye on is She Said. Now, the word on this film, I've heard a wide range of opinions, and I think a lot of it is going to come down to what kind of a story they're telling here. Are they telling a story of, of triumph, of good over evil? Is it more of a uh morose kind of yeah the battle is won but the war is still ongoing type of story like what direction do we expect she said to take and i think depending on which direction it does go in will have a ripple effect across the industry because you know academy voters i mean let's face it movies about hollywood and just about the industry they tend to respond to for obvious reasons uh but this is one that is either going to hold them accountable and culpable in what Harvey Weinstein was doing, or it's going to make them feel good, pat themselves on the back. Oh, the evil is defeated, you know, sort of mentality. And I, I mean, it could go either way in that regard right now at this time. I'm actually leaning more towards the more sophisticated, mature approach, given the talent involved in this movie. I don't think they're going to go for a straight sentimental, good triumphs over evil type of story. I think it's going to be one where, Yes, they took down Harvey Weinstein, but this was just a small piece and a larger uh, a larger problem that still has not been systematically uh, up, up, you know, changed at this point. So well, what's everyone else's read on it uh, as we head into its world premiere at NYFF? Yeah, I mean, I think the, when we first talked about this film, when the trailer dropped, my concerns then I think are still what I have now, which is what you mentioned, Matt, that kind of Hollywoodization of patting yourself on the back and I still feel that so I won't know until you know see the film itself and see what everybody's saying about it but um that's still a a big concern that I feel about the story and having said that I do think it will open up a lot of conversations about the fact that this was just one piece and that there's so much more to this situation I, I think Samantha Morton has a line kind of similar to that effect in the trailer that it's it's more than one person it's more than one man so i do hope they go in the more sophisticated kind of roots that you mentioned before yeah i don't know what to think about this film there's so many different as you said matt so many different opinion like opinions and statements and perspectives that i feel like i could only fully evaluate it after people have actually seen it because i feel like if they go in you know the spotlight direction it'll be good and just to like focus on the journalism and what actually happened and then also state that this is yet yeah, one small piece but then if it becomes like glamorizing the good that hollywood did um that'll kind of like make me a little unqueasy so i'm still i'm like i'm aware of it but i kind of don't want to engage in actual predictions until people have actually seen it so i kind of know what i'm talking about because there's so much noise around this film you know i i think that if this movie does land though and it resonates with academy voters i'm thinking that we're looking at picture adapted screenplay nicholas patel is doing the score so i kind of have him in there by default uh Mm, seeing as how i think that he's just like a one of those favorites amongst the branch at this point. Uh, and I'm sure there'll probably be, be maybe like one acting nomination, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, is it uh, 
It's either Patricia Clarkson or Samantha Morton. Uh, one of the two of them I heard is like basically a one scene wonder, but is really compelling, kind of like Judd Hirsch. I would laugh if it was Samantha Morton, because then that would mean she has two movies this year where she is a one scene wonder with the whale as well. <laughs> it is why you get Samantha Morton. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, The next thing I want to ask about NYFF here is there's a lot of international films playing at the festival, uh, a lot of canned titles. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the international feature race has really started to take shape as certain films are getting picked over others here. So, for example, uh, Christian Mingu's uh, new film RMN is playing at the festival uh, and that did not get picked by Romania for Best International Feature, whereas something like St. Omer, uh, Alice Diop's uh, film was picked by France. That'll be there. So I'll be very curious to see like which films uh, are able to use NYFF as like a springboard in the international feature race. And then it'll be also you know interesting to see how some of these other titles, which still haven't gotten theatrical releases yet from places like Sony Pictures Classics or IFC Films, if they'll be able to capture enough buzz to still do well theatrically uh, when they release. Yeah, it's an interesting race right now because I, I find that like there are some obviously big heavy hitters, but as we notice every year, international feature is like never that easy of a call to make. So I, I'm still on the lookout for something that's going to surprise us. I just don't know what that's going to be at this moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know that like something like No Bears, for example, is not going to get selected uh, by I mean, it didn't get selected by Iran for obvious reasons. Yeah, that was never going to happen. (laughs) Right, right. And then, you know, I always got to keep reminding people of this. I'm going to remind them again. Triangle of Sadness is not an international feature, even though it's directed by Ruben Ostland. (laughs) It is an English language film, people. Uh, But I mean, it'll be exciting to see that come back again to play at NYFF. I'm sure that that's going to help right before its theatrical release from Neon uh, in October. So that'll be fun to see. Um, Anything else outside of that? I mean, there's a lot of other movies that are playing here that I'm personally curious about. Um, Ones like, you know, Paul Schrader's newest film, Master Gardener, in completing like his trilogy with First Reformed and the, The Card Counter. Uh, I've heard mixed things about it. I'm curious to see where I land or pacification from Albert uh, Sarah. I, I've heard that that was really great out of uh, can and it played well at TIFF. So excited to check that one out as well. So, you know, I'm sure there'll be a lot of interesting uh, movies to watch that will not have any bearing on the Oscar race and maybe some that surprisingly will. Yeah, and as I've always thought for myself, I think festivals are a good opportunity to just not watch the bigger stuff early that we know are going to be major players, but also like some smaller things that maybe this is the only chance you'll ever get to see it is in a festival setting. And I'll always find that to be a nice discovery, too. Yeah, I mean, like Nadia over at TIFF, didn't you get that feeling that watching? I'm sure there had to be something that you watched where you said to yourself, this is not going to play anywhere else. This is going to be even hard to watch when it does get released theatrically. This is the only chance I'm ever going to have to watch said film. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely like smaller films that you see it at a festival and it it's like it disappears over yeah. time. It doesn't get picked up. You never see it again until maybe one, two years later where it kind of pops up somewhere. I was talking with the editor for Nelvani at a party recently and he was telling me that there's a film that played at Sundance three years ago that he, that he worked on that still has not been released yet. 
Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Mm. Uh, and Lauren, um, I understand you might be heading back to the Hamptons uh, Film Festival. Is there anything playing there that you might be hoping to catch or? Um, yeah. So Hamptons is fun like that. So um, what's something that's on my mind? I kind, I'm debating if I want to see the sun or not because of the debate. <laughs> um, there's a lot of there's a lot of like things that um, I'm thinking of. I'm definitely um, definitely am um, the Banshees. I love mcdonough and i know that's playing there so if i can get there um that's gonna be something that i definitely want to check out and um and yeah that's all i can think about right at this current moment but um there's still kind of oh yeah glass onions playing there i just they just added that so that's going to be something that's on my radar too but um yeah it's a i love the hamptons film festival it's really nice and fun and sweet and it's cute and little and it's wonderful so i'm excited to go back if if the stars align yeah i wanted to go back again this year it's like a hour and a half drive or so for me every time i go so it's not like terrible yep. but um unfortunately it overlaps with nyff this year and i just don't think i can find the time unfortunately but i really do want to go back at some point josh you have chicago film fest coming up in october yep so I imagine I already know just based on your watching behaviors, you'll definitely watch a couple of films, especially in the international feature race, like some titles that uh, aren't the big ones that we've been hearing about for a while. But the ones that could potentially break through, like like last year, like a yak in the classroom, for example. Yeah, that's usually what I like to spend my time at uh, the Chicago Film Festival doing is trying to find some of those international feature titles. So that's going to be uh, pretty exciting for sure. And uh, I know that this one's already been seen, but they are going to have EO and I cannot oh wait to see it. I cannot wait to see this donkey at NYFF. I hope they actually bring <laughs> out a donkey on the stage. I mean, like, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be amazing, yeah. <laughs> We'd like to introduce the members of the cast here. <laughs> like, and they just bring out the donkey <laughs> for, like, a and a Oh, my God. Please. Oh, my God. If somebody's listening, please make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on to uh, the polls because uh, a lot of our poll conversation right now has to do with uh, a lot of the things that we're talking about here. So, uh, first up, uh, we are going to do last week's poll, which is asking everyone, uh, which of these fall film festival movies are you most looking forward to seeing? So what we did was we took the results from uh, the previous polls for Telluride, Venice, TIFF, NYFF. We put them all together. We've got a top 10 from the MVP film community here, but I pass it over to you, Nadia. Is there anything that you did not see at TIFF that you're looking forward to seeing? Hmm. Well, if we're th- if we're counting something that didn't play there at all, um, Tar. Okay, good choice. Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite films of the year. I cannot wait for everybody to see it. And you won't have to wait long. It's getting released theatrically, uh, I think, for like first week of October, I think, I believe. Can't wait to see it. Will Mavity, how about you? I was honestly going to say Tar. I am just beyond <laughs> hype. So. Hey, it's okay. Sorry. <laughs> Anything else you want to say for the sake of variety or? <laughs> well, I'm looking at the list again. Yeah, I am. You know, at this point, I would say ghoulishly curious about white noise, not because it's supposed to be bad, but because it's so infamously difficult to adapt. And just to see what that's even going to look like. I don't honestly think I'm going to like it that much, but I'm very excited to see it. 
Josh Parm, how about you? I think for me, I would say Women Talking is the one that I'm most looking forward to. There's obviously a lot that I really want to see, but if I had to just pick one, I think it would be that one. Lauren LaMagna? Um, something else that I really want to see um, is All Quiet on the Western Front. I hear great things about that. And yeah, I can't wait for that one to come out, especially it's just talking about international. So that's a good, that's a big one on my radar. Definitely the most terrifying and just harrowing war film I've seen since say Private Ryan. It like really immerses you into the whole war is hell saying in a way that uh, I think is going to leave a huge impact on people. Uh, I'll be curious to see, though, because like in many ways, like Athena, uh, it's a technical showcase. But I do think some people might feel that the story is, you know, a bit redundant, like, oh, we've seen this before or um, it's not really fully developed. But I still I still say give it a shot, especially if you could see it in a theater when it when it comes uh, hopefully around to your respective area. If not, it'll be available on Netflix, of course, but it definitely is a theatrical experience that needs to be exactly that experienced all right and then for myself um i'll say uh looking forward to she said white noise and decision to leave which i finally see this week big big park chan wook fan over here so same all right top 10 from the mvp film community what are they most looking forward to seeing in number 10 we have Edward Berger's version of All Quiet on the Western Front. I definitely want to see that, too. Talk about a movie that didn't have much buzz heading into TIFF, but coming out of TIFF, it became one of the must-see films of the season. Is the power of TIFF. TIFF, the power of TIFF. Number nine, Triangle of Sadness. Mm-hmm. Nadia, did you get a chance to see that? I did. And let me tell you, that was probably the most animated to audience I've been in this this year. It, everybody went crazy for it. It was very entertaining. I really, really hope that uh, Dolly D. Leon uh, can somehow manifest in the Best Supporting Actress conversation. I, I really hope so, because she was fantastic and, and she was at the... Um, she came out afterwards when the film was over and the response that she got personally from the audience was really heartwarming to to see because she really is great in this. Yeah, she's like a character you don't really notice so much in the first second acts of the movie, but she completely dominates the third act of the film and yeah. leaves such a huge impression. So, yeah, definitely agree with that. Number eight is Decision to Leave. Mm-hmm. A lot of Park Chan-wook fans out there. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that is very much high on my list of wanting to see, too. Number seven is Women Talking. I'm actually kind of surprised it's that low. <laughs> well, when I say these next couple of films, I think it might put it in perspective as to why. Okay. Number six is Bones and All. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Sexy. <laughs> that is a gnarly film. Let me tell you. I mean, and I do want to see it, too, to be fair. But, like, I, I think I know why that is quite that high. <laughs> it's so it's so funny to me, though. Like, when I saw it at Telluride, I, I'm pretty positive there were people in the audience that did not know what kind of film it was because the reactions around me were shock and then a walkout. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people were like, oh, it's Luca Guadagnino getting back to Timothy. I bet it's going to be really sweet and romantic. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah exactly that. <laughs> 
Number five is The Banshees of Feckin' Inishirin. Can't wait to see that. That's like the unofficial title at this point. <laughs> no, I take I take back what I said earlier. That's my most anticipated of this fest. I can't wait. Yeah, Will Mavity's like, what? Martin McDonough made a good film that I might actually like? I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> In my defense, I love In Bruges. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It's just you and I had our disagreements over three billboards. Yeah. Number four is The Whale. Mm-hmm. Number three is Tar. Two is The Fablemans. And number one is Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Interesting that that's number one. Mm. Not by a lot, uh, by 17 votes, but still. I mean, yeah, that's still pretty close. I kind of feel like maybe what gives Glass Onion the edge is because it's the mystery. You want to see it before it gets spoiled for you. I also think, too, the fan base that's already like built in for it from the first film helps. Oh, sure. Yeah. All right. And then for this week's poll. Kind of continuing what we were talking about before with NYFF, I want to get an idea of where we're at right now in the Best International Feature race. So I'm asking everyone, which movies do you think will be nominated for Best International Feature Film? So, I mean, we could do this a couple of different ways. I mean, you could look at your predictions currently on Next Best Picture and just say that. Uh, We're allowing everybody to vote up to seven times on this poll here. Uh, And what I did was I included every single film that's been officially selected so far uh, by their respective countries with a few additional add ons here and there that we're expecting to get the nominations from the country. Uh, But obviously, those are unconfirmed. Hopefully will not change throughout the week. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly the tide can turn. Isn't that right, India? (laughs) So sad. (laughs) So, Josh. Where are you at on this race? Uh, well, I definitely think that movies like All Quiet on the Western Front are looking pretty good. Decision to leave. I, I still have I, I have a suspicion that that's actually going to do very well, too. I think Close is another one that seems to get people very emotional and it seems like it'll do well in the race. Um, but outside of that, I you always try to think about what movie might surprise you. And it's, it's hard to kind of find it this year because there's just so many options right now, but I always think there's one in there that at least doesn't quite feel as dark as the other ones. And I, maybe that is, that is EO. It seems like people really like that movie. So maybe that'll be in there too. Two things about this race. I mean, there are some obvious choices because they've gotten a lot of publicity so far. I still would not count out Bardo from Mexico. No, no. We'll talk about the trailer for that in just a minute here. But I I still have not completely written it off just yet. Uh, Joyland is another film that I'm expecting will get the nomination. Uh, And like that's one I would keep an eye on. But one film in particular that I saw at Sundance that I think everyone is like forgotten about And it's really, really, really powerful. I mean, like the final like five minutes of the movie uh, have stuck with me uh, since and have not left me. It's uh, Ukraine's official submission for this year, and it's called Klondike. It very much speaks to how much uh, the war with Russia has ripped apart uh, certain communities and families and lives in general. And I have a very, very strong feeling that that is one that we're not talking about right now that could see a uh, a resurgence over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it it could not be timelier. So Mm -hmm. 
Um, I want to also mention, I mean, Josh, did you mention Saint-Omer? Yeah, that guy, France's official pick. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that is definitely on my radar, too. Yeah. I think that, uh, and then obviously, you know, it, it's a dark as shit movie, but if the Holy Spider ends up being Denmark's submission. That plays very well, might I add. Like, I was not expecting that to be as engrossing as it actually was. Great score. Ali Abassi, I think, is like a filmmaker who, with the previous movie, um, Border. Oh, yeah, the troll. Yeah. Right, like really like came on the people's radar in a big way. So uh, that was not nominated for international feature, but did end up getting a makeup uh, nomination. So, yeah, it's very, very possible that this one could get the uh, official selection and go all the way. I think another one, um, you know, IFC is definitely hit or miss in their campaigns, but it seems like they really want to make Corsage happen. They had that great poster of Vicky Creeps flipping off the uh, the audience. Oh, I love that poster. That might be my favorite poster of the year. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And surrounded by pull quotes. Um, and then another one is Alcaraz, uh, Spain's submission. You know, I think it was the... The runner-up, was it the winner or the runner-up at Berlin? Um, yeah, so I, no, it was the winner. Yeah, I think that's worth considering, too. Agreed. Yeah, I, I, a lot of what's mentioned is definitely, it's on my list as well, like Decision decision to Leave, which I had the opportunity to see at, at TIFF, and I thought it was really, really well done, and so I can definitely see it being up there. And St. Omer, I actually pushed up in my predictions since TIFF. I haven't had a chance to see it, but from what I've heard on the ground, it's very, 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 very good. And I'm looking forward to seeing it. I also want to give a shout out to Amy Smith, who wrote an article this week on the website uh, as to why Italy should select the Eight Mountains as its uh, selection this year. It's a movie that premiered at Cannes that she really, really loved and has really just been quiet ever since has it played at a single other uh, fall film festival, which I found to be quite uh, shocking actually, considering that the uh, filmmakers behind it, um, Felix van Groningen and um, uh, Charlotte Vandermeesh, uh, they previously did the broken circle breakdown. So yeah, definitely a little surprising. It also stars uh, Luca Marinelli, who I'm sure everyone here probably remembers from uh, Martin Eden and was also in The Old Guard. So there's a lot of appeal here. Uh, I just don't know what's been going on with it. Yeah, it's very strange. I do really want to see that movie because it sounds like it got very good notices. Mm-hmm. Uh, Argentina eight, uh, 1985 also uh, is a film that has Amazon behind it. So I would keep that on the radar as well. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, like when you really think about it, like as as I was saying before, there's so many films here that have a lot of publicity. But the thing to watch out for are the movies that don't have a lot of publicity and are secretly like the best films of the year just flying under the radar waiting for a chance to be seen. Yeah. And it's always something that usually is under the radar, but really gets people emotionally, because that is exactly what happened with uh, a yak in a classroom last year. And that's why I think Klondike is going to be that film, possibly from Ukraine. That's my that's my current like narrative that I've crafted around this movie. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, anything from Ukraine this year, I think, would get special consideration regardless. Sure. All right, so you can choose up to seven films here. Uh, We'll read out the winners on next week's show. And it's a question that we're definitely going to revisit, I think, in a couple weeks' time, especially as 
more of these films get seen and the race starts to crystallize even more so. One of the biggest features, though, that is in contention for Best International Feature is Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, which Netflix did release a trailer for this week, and also announced that the movie is going to be 22 minutes shorter. Uh, So that 174-minute cut that played at Venice and Telluride will not be the final cut that is released by Netflix. So I don't know yet if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, Having seen the 174-minute version of this film, I will say that uh, it was definitely my biggest gripe with the movie was that I didn't think it warranted a near three-hour runtime. So let's take a look at the trailer and let's give some thoughts and see what everybody is thinking about for Alejandro G. Ingaritu's latest. Uh, you can already tell. I mean, it looks astonishingly pretentious, but uh, as usual, it looks really <laughs> cool visually. As I said earlier, I have not ruled out this movie quite yet for international feature. And also, too, Darius Kanji's cinematography, uh, it, it really is one of the highlights of the movie as evidenced by this trailer, which doesn't have any dialogue and it's all visual. So I think you all pretty much got a sense of how immaculate his work is in this. And the production design looks great, too. Oh, it is. It's one of the unsung heroes of the movie, for Mm -hmm. sure. Like, from a below-the-line aspect, this film looks really, really strong. From this trailer, at least. Yeah. I I know that my brand is not being into Inyarity movies. And I will say that from this trailer, it's undeniable that visually, yes, it looks great. But... That has never been my issue with his movies. I think his films always look great. He works with really fantastic cinematographers. So I expected the film to look the way that it does. My issue is more going to be what it will be uh, content-wise in terms of what he is talking about. And I, I find it funny that this trailer, yes, it doesn't have any dialogue in it. It's all visual. So it's like really leading with the thing that works best about his movies and not emphasizing the things that usually don't work about his films. So I am still very skeptical about that, but I'm willing to give the movie a chance. I hope I do like it, but I, I would not say this trailer has convinced me that I will like it at the end of the day. When I saw it at Telluride, I understood what he was going for with it in terms of what he wanted the movie to say. It's very much about reckoning with not just uh, a life, but also a legacy and one that one leaves behind identity as well in terms of culture and heritage. Uh, And he's doing this as he's, you know, 60 years old and entering, um, I I guess the appropriate term is like summer autumn years. (laughs) of his life so in that way like i understood what he was going for with it once again my biggest problem though was the movie is very is very repetitious and it did not need 174 minutes to convey all the ideas that it did which is why i'm more curious than ever to watch a tighter i'm not going to say tight just tighter (laughs) (laughs) version of this movie at two and a half hours because that was the thing that I, I remember specifically talking with Clayton Davis about this uh, from Variety after we both saw it together. I was like, man, if this movie was somewhere between 2.15 and 2.30, I mean, 2.30 is like pushing it. But I was like, somewhere in that realm, I, I think this would have landed a lot better. And I do think, too, that the Venice reactions were a bit hyperbolic and maybe driven by some vendetta because... I don't think it's I really don't think it warrants uh, the critical bashing that it received 
so far at this point. But, you know, I'm not, like, wholly positive on it. I'm definitely, like, more mixed positive, but hoping that this new cut can definitely uh, push me into uh, an even greater level of appreciation for what he's doing here. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) But there also might be a bit of a fatigue of the director biopic happening by said director. So that could be the reason for the like, I'm sensing it. I feel it a little bit. So that could be the kickback for the negative reviews that it's just it's too long. I'm seeing the same story over and over again by these great directors. And I'm kind of sick of it. And we're getting two of those this year. And one of them is going to be a huge best picture contender, probably. So that's probably what's happening is that this new trend is getting very tired very fast. Yeah, I, you know, Empire of Light contains personal uh, elements from Sam Mendes' life. Armageddon Time, as mentioned earlier, Fablemans, that's the best, best picture contender I assume you're you're talking about here. India's international feature submission yep. too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's another one. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah. This is, this is definitely like a reoccurring theme. Uh, I think that has been spawned because of the pandemic. That's my current interpretation as to why we're getting so many of these stories lately. But Bardo, the thing that makes Bardo really stand out amongst all the ones that we've mentioned so far, it it is the surrealist elements and the fact that it is just such a like like very Fellini-esque kind of eight and a half style movie in a lot of ways. There's some imagery in this that is just completely striking and unforgettable. I'm sure. Like I said, visually... Inyaritu has never wavered on that. I think all his movies do look great. It's just the stories and the themes that he explores, I have just never really been a big fan of. But I I hope that this is different. I would love for me to walk into this movie and enjoy it and be like, yes, this is finally the one that he made that I get. Just the initial reactions that I've heard from it don't encourage me to believe that I will think that, but I hope so. I, I hope that I like this movie. I truly do. All right. Well, it is scheduled to be released in theaters on November 18th and will be coming to Netflix on December 16th. Any other final thoughts here before we move on to our next trailer? Uh, yeah, Matt, actually, I do have one more. Having seen it, uh, visual effects, sleeper contender, question mark? Question mark. I mean, I, I'm starting I'm starting to think that the category is becoming pretty top heavy. Yeah. He does have a, a big team of semi-regulars on it. Oh, no, no, totally agree with that. Do you but think it's going to make the bake-off? It could. Yeah, no, it definitely could. I'm just not, I'm not fully there because there's a lot of other non-heavy visual effects contenders. Like I was mentioning before, Goodnight Oppie. Um, I also feel that All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, there's also Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. You know, like there's a lot of movies that like are not obvious visual effects contenders that I kind of have my eyes on, along with the heavy hitters like Avatar of the Batman. R-R-R. And, yeah, RRR. God, I feel like we've been dancing around it this entire podcast so far, but God damn it, RRR should be getting more love in the Oscar race. <laughs> oh, India, what did you do? <laughs> well, you know, there's still passion for that movie out there, so maybe this will actually defy the odds. If anything could. It's RRR. I mean, I went back to that initial poll that we conducted back in the spring as to like what the best movies were of the year so far when we were taking like a little bit of a temperature check with people. And I saw how many write-ins we got for RRR. It like it wasn't like number six in that list. Like it. Yeah, there is a ton of passion still out there for that movie. Absolutely. How about 
Adam McKay being like, we need to host a Hollywood Bowl screening of this movie to get it into Best Picture. You saw that on Twitter? I mean, isn't it playing at the uh, Chinese theater in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah. It's part of Beyond Fest. And yeah. it's going to have uh, a Q&A with the director and stars. So, I mean, there are, you know follow-up screenings like it's certainly in los angeles there's still a concerted effort being made to make sure people remember it so i mean song visual effects sound you know like there are still possibilities for that movie mm-hmm. it just has to be kept in the conversation exactly all right our next trailer here is for an animated feature contender uh from surprise surprise walt disney animation studios <laughs> <laughs> this is the 61st animated film that they have uh, produced. It is directed by Don Hall, who uh, you all probably uh, will recognize from his work on Big Hero 6, Raya and the Last Dragon, uh, which was able to get a Best Feature uh, Animated Feature nomination. Stars the voice talents of Jake Gyllenhaal, Dennis Quaid, and a few others here. Um, it is scheduled to be released on November 23rd. Let's take a look at the trailer and give some thoughts. Whoa! What kind of airship is that? I've never seen president doing in our front yard our entire world is in grave danger i want you to come with me on an expedition i'm not my father he was the explorer i know you were just a kid when he went missing but now you're all we got mr clade i'm a huge fan oh, thank you of your dad do you think you could forge his autograph what you yeah they're going like the action adventure sci-fi fantasy route with this i mean like the title font being like in the realm of something like indiana jones obviously but yeah i i don't know i don't know about this one i don't i'm not sure i'm totally sold on it i mean it looks it looks like fun uh especially because of the fantastical worlds that looks like it's exploring so like from an animation standpoint it looks like it could be uh, visually interesting, but at the same time, like the story, even though they really do highlight a lot of the father-son elements here, I wasn't exactly sold on the story itself here by this trailer. Yeah, are you getting Meet the Robinsons vibes from like early 2000s animated Disney? I, mean, I have to go pretty far in my memory bank for that one, but now do you bring it up? Sure. Stop, that was <laughs> such a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I didn't really feel hooked from the trailer. I think it was missing that story element for me of trying to grasp what they're really going for. But I am intrigued by what the actual world building will be like. And I do think it looks pretty great on a visual standpoint as well. I'm also here for Dennis Quaid's voiceover performance from what we hear so far in the trailer. He just sounds like he's having so much fun being able to like cut loose. Yeah, he's like, you got me a machete for my birthday. Oh, classic me. I was two. <laughs> also, his introductory scene is with a flamethrower, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah, but it does feel like the bones of this story kind of feel very familiar. Uh, like the whole, the dad disappeared on an adventure. We're on an adventure ourselves, and we meet up with him, and there's, you know, family issues that get brought up alongside these set pieces. Like, I, I kind of feel like I can track where the story yep. is going immediately and that is the element that's not completely exciting me about the movie but i'm sure it'll be fun and entertaining but yeah it's not like one that i need to see right now 
No. I mean, at this point, I'm really just seeing it for the simple fact that I know that by default, it's going to be a contender in this year's animated feature race. More than likely. Yeah. So, but, you know, we discussed this in the group chat yesterday. The fact that this looks like, yeah, you know, that could be all Del Toro needs to, you know, kind of break the stranglehold that Disney has in this category. It'd be very cool. Especially considering that behind the scenes video that was released yesterday. Oh, my God. Uh, my God. So, so cool. cool. <sighs> man. Incredible. Yeah. Stop motion, man. There's nothing like it. I do feel very bad for Henry Selick with Wendell and Wilde, for the record. <laughs> I mean, I think he's still in the conversation. Yeah, I just think that Guillermo is going to just overshadow yeah. that movie completely now. Probably. I mean, it's also Netflix, too. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Will, interesting point there, because, you know, a part of me is wondering, is it possible? I, I mean, I don't think so. And if it is, it's like slim to none chances. But is it possible that Disney Pixar just doesn't get a nomination this year at all? Uh, if we had the old voting system, yes. I think, unfortunately, now that everyone can vote there, if for no other reason, just to ensure that they as a company don't have egg on their face, I think there's no way that they let that happen. Uh, I think turning red probably is going to end up being their best bet for a nomination. I think so, too. It should be. It's clearly the best movie they have this year. Yeah. Yeah. So I would be pretty shocked if they were entirely shut out. Uh, we, we just did this with international feature. Let's uh, go around really quick here. And we all pretty much have Del Toro predicted for animated feature, I imagine. Oh, yeah. OK, so then after that, do we all have turning red? Uh, I do. I do. Yes. Yeah. OK. And then following that, I guess by default, we all have strange world for the time being until we hear reactions to it. Yeah, it's in my five, just because I do think it will kind of be the default Disney Animation Studios movie that gets in. And then those last two slots are really up for grabs, really. The Sea Beast. I would love for the Sea Beast to be in there. The Sea Beast. I want the Sea Beast to make it. Yeah, I think the Sea Beast is in there. I do think Wendell and Wild still, just because it is Henry Selick. And uh, animators also just love stop motion in general. So I, I do think that will get in. And... Um, isn't there another cartoon saloon movie that's out? Yes. My Father's Dragon? Yeah, I think that's another one because all three of their previous movies got nominated, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like it's hard to not bet uh, or, you know, to go against them as a studio to not get a nomination. Two movies I, like, have my eye on. One as a passion pick and the other as a, hey, just watch out for this. The watch out for this contender is the bad guys. Mm-hmm. You want Mar? Do you want Marcel the shell? And my passion pick is Marcel the shell with shoes on. Yeah, <laughs> I am not giving up on that movie. <laughs> Nor should you. If there is any year for Disney to be shut out, though, it is this year. Yeah, it's just a lot of really strong competition. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe Puss and Boots uh, is going to be great. <laughs> I actually do think that is a contender because the last movie it was a while ago, but it did get nominated and. There's like a weird thing with the animation in this one that it's not just your regular computer generated stuff. It's much more artistic. And I do think that might give it a chance to break into the race. So I am absolutely not counting out that film. 
Yeah, I, I I love the possibilities for this race this year. I'm very, very excited to see where it goes, especially once uh, London Film Festival rolls around. That's where we're going to get Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And also, too, I believe My Father's Dragon is having its world premiere there as well. Yeah, it really, to me, felt like that once Lightyear just absolutely cratered, that created... A, a lot more fluidity in the race, which is very exciting. All right. And then our final trailer this week is Knock at the Cabin <laughs> from director M. Night Shyamalan. And it is going to be released February 3rd from Universal Pictures. Let's take a look at the trailer and give some thoughts here. Are we going to sing along? Yes, of course. I want to put on Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say. I feel like every time I get the the carrot dangles in front of me with a new M. Night movie, and I feel like I'm always disappointed. I felt this way with The Visit, with Split and Glass and Old. Like, I see the trailer, I get excited, and then the movies underwhelm me. And I know I should learn that lesson. But goddammit, I haven't. I, I'm looking forward to this movie based on this trailer. I still am looking forward to a new M. Night movie, even though I will probably be disappointed based on what's happened before. But I don't care. I still want to see this movie. Hey, I'm, I'm, Josh, I'm with you on that. He, M. Night Shyamalan, he is hit or miss for me. But I like him. I think he is one of the most, having said all that, one of the most ambitious working directors. I've always admired that quality about him. So that's why I always show up for a new film of his. And I really... I like this trailer. I like that it doesn't tell you too much and the concept seems interesting, but yeah, it's just a matter of how disappointed will I be by the result. <laughs> like, like yeah, we already know we're going to be disappointed. It's just a question of how much. <laughs> no, I just find, I find it funny how you guys are just accepting immediate defeat no matter what. But like, it's, it's Shyamalan. You, gotta, you have to have fun with it. Yeah. But but he is truly the definition of a filmmaker where every single film, every single one, it's it can go either way. <laughs> Embrace the fun of it. You never know what you're going to get. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I am excited for that reason. Like, I actually like The Visit and I like Split. I did not like Glass and I did not like Old. So, you know, I don't know which way we're trending right now necessarily. But the first, like, 75% of this trailer, I was so on board with it. I'm looking at this and I'm saying to myself, oh, this is centering around a gay a gay couple, uh, as a family with an adopted da- daughter, it looks like. Uh, home invasion story, uh, something that I'm personally really, really afraid of, uh, as some people know about me. And then once Dave Batista broke in and said, we need to, like, your family has to make a decision to stop the apocalypse, like, save the world. I was like... Okay, M. Night Shyamalan, what the fuck are you doing right now? Because that means that there's going to be some sort of a reveal or twist here that is either going to be absolutely brilliant and rooted in character, which will allow for some good performances to come through, or it's going to be a WTF, the plants are the happening, what the fuck, I don't know. It just like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I just don't know which way it's going. You never know what you're going to get with him. But 
I, I'm still going to be optimistic, even though I probably shouldn't be, given my previous track record with his movies. But I do think this trailer is very intriguing. I, it does have my attention. One of the things that Old's trailer did not prepare me for was how god-awful the cinematography of that movie was. So I'm hoping that M. Night Shyamalan pairing up here with Jaren uh, Blaschke, who uh, is Robert Eggers' DP for all three of his previous films. I'm hoping that that produces better results here. Yeah. I can only hope. <laughs> And I'm still, having said all that, I'm still really optimistic about it as well because I, I I like him. I think he he's he makes interesting choices, and it's regardless of how it might be, it's it, I feel like it's it'll be an entertaining watch. It's just a question of for the right reasons and for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah. I saw this comment on YouTube that said. Uh... Whenever Dave Bautista puts on glasses, you know he's going to give the performance of a lifetime. <laughs> I was so serious. Yes. I'm still obsessed with his tiny glasses from Blade Runner. The man is I've making seen a miracle. <laughs> no, I just find his choices to be oh so interesting. Same with um, Rupert Grant. I just love those guys. And I get scared easily personally. I don't like horror movies. I don't like scary movies. I know it's spooky season, but I'm sorry. I don't like them. It's not entertaining. It's not fun for me. So I know that this is, no matter what happens in this movie, it's going to scare the ever-living daylight out of me because I'm a scaredy cat. So I know it'll do that for me, but like as it'll do for you guys, who knows? But I know at least I'm going to be pretty freaking terrified, no matter how stupid or crazy this movie gets. So... The family's taken hostage here by the four strangers, and they are told they have to make a sacrifice in order to avert the apocalypse. Are we just under the assumption here that uh, the two dads have to, like, sacrifice their kid? Is that, like, what everyone's getting from the premise here? Seems like it. I know that this is based on a book, so the information is out there. I have not read the book, uh, but it also sounds to me like, yeah, what we see in this trailer is relatively early in the movie and that it does take some interesting directions i have heard i don't know but that's just the word i've heard out there you know this would be very interesting if i were to like bring back like next best adaptation to like visit this book and then see the movie because the initial draft that was was done by uh steve desmond and michael uh sherman and M. Night Shyamalan did a uh, final rewrite on the screenplay. So I have a feeling that even whatever is in the book, like something tells me that M. Night Shyamalan would just like throw his own twist and give his own version of an ending for the story. So I feel like even if you read the book beforehand, you probably won't be spoiled by the movie. <laughs> there is a possibility. Well, and uh, people were mad, including the author, that he was entirely left out of the trailer and the credits. He Oof. tweeted about like, oh, I guess they, they wrote my uh, my name in black ink oh in my. the trailer. <laughs> All right. February 3rd. Quite a ways to go uh, for this one. But hey, it's new M. Night Shyamalan. We're all excited for different reasons. <laughs> oh, for sure. All right, and now let's answer some fan questions from the MVP film community. Let's see what they had to ask us this week. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. All right, Akshat Davala, 
We've all been desperately searching for a reason why Michelle Williams was put into the lead actress category. Could it be that Universal saw what may have potentially happened with Belfast with a rumored lead supporting split and decided to get ahead of it? What do you all think? Oh, here we go. This was like the (laughs) biggest talking point of the entire week. My God. Oh, I wonder why. She had that Oscar. Yeah. Her name was practically engraved on it once the reviews dropped from TIFF for that movie. You know what? (laughs) Miss Michelle wants to be best actress, not best supporting actress. So she decided to bump herself up. That's what I think happened. I, I mean, you know, we can't say for sure if it was her decision, Universal, they did it together. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was I hers. think it's her. <laughs> well. I mean, because it is up to the actors to decide where they want to be placed. Like, the studio has input, but ultimately, it is up to them, right? Yes. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, that's true. And I'm sure Universal would not want to get rid of that supporting actors campaign that seemed, as we said, guaranteed and I bet they told her. I bet they said, okay, this is the chip that's on the table. You're basically going to win Best Supporting Actress if you do this. But she said that she wants to go into lead. Nadia, you saw the film over at TIFF. I wrote a piece about this, so like my thoughts about it are all on the website for anybody that wants to read them. But what's your interpretation, having seen the film out of <sighs> TIFF? I mean, I'm still kind of grasping it all. I, she I mean, she's definitely, she's wonderful in the film. Um... It did feel like an easy supporting win, but the more I'm thinking about this, the more this placement feels like, okay, they're kind of giving, and maybe I'm just off the wall here, but kind of being touted as the lead star of the entire ensemble, if that makes sense. Yeah, because we know like the Academy uh, campaigning history of the kids who are not well known. Yeah, Yeah. they just get put in supporting. Mm -hmm, It happens all the time. Yeah, so given that aspect of it, like beyond the kid, it's it's Michelle Williams really who is that kind of has that kind of starry role if you want to call it that. Okay. Uh, I have a question. Is it similar to Brie Larson in Room or is Brie Larson by far more prevalent than Michelle Williams is here? I'm sorry, Brie Larson is more prevalent in my mind. Yeah. Okay. Like this really truly is a case where this is a supporting performance. Do not let anybody tell you otherwise. The film is told entirely from the kid's perspective. Michelle Williams, to my recollection, and maybe I'm wrong, Nadia, I don't remember any scene that is told exclusively from her perspective without young Sammy being involved. Yeah. And the the only one that comes closest to it would be, I'm not going to spoil it, but she has one scene in a in a closet. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So and it kind of really zones in on her and it focuses on her perspective. But again, that is directly related to uh, what happens with the kids' perspective. And because there are all these other supporting performances in it, too, like Judd Hirsch, Paul Dano. uh, And then you also have other young kid actors that uh, young Sammy is interacting with. Like there's a girl that he uh, starts dating when he's in school. He gets bullied. Michelle Williams is gone for long stretches of this movie. Yeah. Like this is not a showcase role. Uh, where she is the movie, which is what I feel like in these lead categories nowadays, you really like you can get away with being a two hander where you have co-lead status with somebody else. But if you're not like if your performance is not the entire thing that the movie is built around, then I struggle to see how she gets in unless if the Fablemans is just such a juggernaut this entire season that they somehow miraculously 
rope her in into the lead actress category, which I think is what they're hoping for. And I think that will happen. But the thing that's going to make that happen is if Paramount now kind of seizes the opportunity and decides, hey, you know what? There's an opening in supporting actress. Let's put Margot Robbie out of lead and put her into supporting. Maybe there's some more category fraud going on there. I I really do not think that's going to happen. The other thing that could happen with Universal now is uh, they also have She Said this year. And uh, from what I've heard, in theory, they could category fraud Carrie Mulligan into supporting instead of lead. Yeah, I think the argument would be Kazan would be lead then, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I mean, in theory, they could, since they're bumping Michelle up, put Carrie Mulligan down there. We, You know, that film, we haven't, it hasn't premiered. We don't know how the reaction is going to be. But that could be an interesting twist, since they're both being distributed by Universal that could come out of this. Maybe that was the plan by Universal to not have then Mulligan and Michelle Williams competing against each other. It's possible. I mean, let's let's see in like a week uh, what the reaction is to she said, but mm-hmm. that is possible. Yeah, I mean, I'm also thinking about the scenario of what if she just, Michelle Williams just ends up in the supporting category. Like, I'm just thinking about- the, That could happen. Her. Yeah, the Academy might decide, like, yeah, yeah, fuck where you're campaigning her. We're putting her wherever we want. I mean, we just saw it happen two years ago with Lakeith Stanfield and Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah. Still don't know how that happened. <laughs> it's so funny when that stuff happens. They're just weird. I mean, the better example, obviously, is Kate Winslet in The Reader. Yeah. Yeah. Although that was a situation where she had two movies, she had two movies. at the same time and there was competition there. Yeah. So it's not quite the same. Yeah, it. It's a weird situation, for sure. Like, I haven't seen the movie, but it does sound like it's very much a supporting role. But, you know, at the same time, it now the Oscar season is in complete chaos. Because supporting actress was our only category where we kind of had just a definite front runner, Where we were like, okay, we have our number one, and we kind of have four also-rans. And that that is our narrative. And now that is completely thrown up in the air. And we have no idea what to do. And... That is incredibly exciting, especially at this point in the Oscar season. And I would just tell people to embrace that chaos because things will probably get very predictable and boring once we get closer to the actual Oscar ceremony. So this is fun. I I enjoy this section now because it means that there's a lot of different possibilities to consider. And the thing that's going to make it more fun, too, is going to see uh, when we get to the critics phase of the season, who puts her in lead and who decides to put her in supporting? Will the Globes put her in lead drama? Will they put her in supporting? What will BAFTA do? I mean, like, that's the part to me that I find to be most interesting is how many groups are going to reject this placement in the lead up to the nominations. And then, I mean, to be fair, we probably won't know where she's going to actually get nominated until nomination morning. Yeah, that reminds me of when Carol was campaigning with the critics and Rooney, Mara, and Kate Blanchett were all over the place overlapping each other, and we were just, like, confused. (laughs) So that's, I kind of like that chaos, too, of, like, Michelle's going somewhere, she's getting nominated, but where is she getting nominated is the question. Yeah, like, Globes and BAFTA actually have a history of bucking against the category placement of the studio. So those are possibilities of her to go into supporting. I think it's sad you have to go with whatever the studio said. I think that there's a an actual mandate, and I don't trust Critics' Choice to do anything different from what the studio tells them to do. So 
yeah, I feel like there will be some outliers of where she gets placed, but I do feel like for the most part, it'll be in lead her precursors, but that still means that it's up to the Academy to make the final determination. I want to play devil's advocate here. Within the context of this movie, she is the, I guess, lead actress performance. Yeah, th- but there's always a difference between being like a leading role yes, and that's the, the leading gender role of a movie. Right. Like, that, there is a difference between those two. Absolutely. And then the other thing I'll say, too, is that when I was looking at our predictions post this announcement, uh, I was amused by how many of us have her in both categories, just kind of like as a hedging our bets <laughs> kind of stance yeah. here. Um, so I want to know, though, now that she is being campaigned in lead, Will, do you have her making a five or do you have her just missing? Yeah, I currently have her getting in. I think she's going to campaign I, I'm, her butt off. I think assuming as many people are that the Fablemans is our best picture winner, I think it'll have enough buzz and enough eyeballs to get her into lead especially when some of the other contenders like olivia coleman empire of light no matter how much they may like olivia coleman doesn't necessarily have a best picture nominee backing her up i think the fact that the film is presumably a strong contender across the board is what's going to make a difference agreed and as some people have mentioned on twitter you know like it could be like Olivia Coleman in The Favorite, where we all thought it was a mistake, and then boom. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the uh, Coleman comparison to The Favorite is actually the best comparison I've heard here so far because uh, people need to remember and realize that The Fablemans is not even just a best picture contender, it is legitimately the early front runner for best picture. So. I always tell people, yes, nothing is ever locked at this stage. Like people were like, saying, oh, you guys are so silly for thinking Michelle Williams was a lock for Best Supporting Actress. You guys look like fools. And it's like, listen, somebody has to be at number one, (laughs) you know, when we do this sort of thing. It doesn't mean that that's actually going to pan out and happen. The the season always takes these twists and turns. But right now, The Fablemans is the frontrunner for Best Picture. And that does help Michelle Williams in this race. So, As much as I disagree with it, and I think that she should be placed in supporting, not because it would be an easy win, but that's just because I really do believe this is a supporting performance. I have her getting in. I don't have her winning at this point, but I mean, I see I see a world where maybe Tar doesn't have a Best Picture nomination. Maybe Empire of Light does not have a Best Picture nomination. Uh, Till does not have a Best Picture nomination. I Want to Dance with Somebody does not have a like. And then then you have the Fablemans. Yeah. It, it, exactly. That's going to help. Yeah, I think also going back to Will's point about the campaigning side of it, I, it's going to be interesting to see how that narrative plays out with the success, you know, you know if the Fablemans continues its success, but also Williams herself being a four-time Oscar nominee, she's never won. Do you think that could factor in a piece somehow? I mean, that was already part of her narrative for supporting, so yeah. I'm just curious about how that will kind of feed into the campaigning side of it, just given the fact that she's never won before. Totally. I mean, you have Coleman, who's a previous winner, Blanchett, who's a previous winner. Uh, then you have Michelle Yeoh, Danielle Deadweiler, Naomi Aki, uh, who are all competing for, in, in these cases, their first nominations. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. 
I, 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 for that reason alone, I almost ha- feel like I have to give Michelle Williams the edge because she's a previous nominee. Yeah, like I really feel is- like Best Actress has still some wiggle room in it. I, I don't think that her going into this category ultimately means that she's not winning. I still think there's a world where she could still win Best Actress because there's still some questions I have in the category. So I get it. It would have been much easier, absolutely, to do it in supporting. But, you know, it's just because it's harder to do does not mean it's an impossibility at this point. Butter Parsnip, who among the Best Supporting Actress contenders do you think benefits the most from Michelle Williams' campaign change? Someone from Women Talking. Yeah, I just I, I think that's Jesse Buckley because she's the previous nominee. Yeah, I I would say so. I mean, because that's why I have a number one now, but I also feel so at a loss of, of this category right now. I really don't know what to do. It's tough. I mean, as I was uh, saying earlier, it could also be Rooney Mara. Uh, and I know Claire Foy is a huge standout in the movie, too. So it could be her. But I agree with what Lauren's saying. Somebody from Women Talking, unless if, uh, you know, maybe Mulligan from She Said really does become the front runner in the category. Yeah. You know what it, predicting this category feels like now? It feels like predicting best director in 2012 after Ben Affleck got snubbed. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> Oscar Odyssey, do you think it's possible for a film like Babylon to break the record for the most Oscar nominations? Or do you think 15 is a set number that a film just will not have the capacity to pass anytime soon? They really fucked up by merging the sound categories. That's going to make it super hard to break the record. I actually did the math on this because uh, I saw this question beforehand. The only way Babylon gets 15 Oscar nominations is one, it has to get in everywhere. And two, it needs a double acting nominee in either supporting uh, categories. Like it needs to get every tech. It needs to get Diego Calva and Margot Robbie into lead. Uh, or, or Margot Robbie and I don't know somebody else in supporting like it needs it needs like just one extra acting nomination in order to pull it off but yeah Will to your point if they had two sound categories uh, no need for the extra acting nomination yeah, and I still don't think that's happening I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's gonna yeah, it's <laughs> no. not gonna get that many nominations Manning Franks uh, I asked this question a few weeks ago about a foreign language film breaking into best picture best director and the answer then was unequivocally Bardo however with Bardo's less than lukewarm response, uh, are we looking at another foreign film possibility uh, breaking through in these categories? Well, we still say don't count out Bardo completely. Like it, it still could linger around, and you know, depending on where the passion for it is. Uh, but at this moment, I'm still sticking with decision to leave. You know, it, I might be wrong, but just at this point, that's the one that I'm betting on. I'm betting on All Quiet on the Western Front. I agree, Matt, I, even though I haven't seen it and I want to see it, but that's where I think a lot of the noise is right now. The Academy loves war films. Yes, they do. <laughs> Ryan Rabideau, as of right now, who is the front runner for best original score? Well, I think we all have Fablemans right Williams, now, don't we? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. I actually don't think the score for Fablemans is worthy of a win. That's not the question. <laughs> this is all 100% pure narrative. Yeah, yeah but it's John Williams. He, Th- that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a huge narrative. Right. And it's also, too, his last score with Steven Spielberg. Right. His last score will be for Indiana Jones with uh, James Mangold. Then he's retiring. He's like 90 years old. So like he's earned the retirement, I would say. Sure. Film Guy 619. Uh, this is the Wolfman. Do you feel that the box office success of Don't Worry Darling could help Florence Pugh's lead actress chances for the wonder? 
Uh, no, no, I do not think so, she's a contender for that movie. No, and I got to see the Wonder at Tiff, and and she's incredible in it, but it's it's just not going to happen. No, I no. agree. Josie DeMarco, if Avatar: The Way of Water gets in for picture, do you think it would have to be nominated for director, or could it get into Best Picture with just tech nominations alone? Uh, I think it could do it with just techs. Yeah, me too. I mean. Ford v. Ferrari just did that recently. I mean, there's countless examples of that. Nightmare Alley just last year, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's going to it's going to come out right before voting. It'll probably make a fuck ton of money. Like, you know, all the things that voters like. And you guys just saw the report too. Uh, the re-release of the first film just made like $10 million. Again, I wouldn't bet against James Cameron. You guys are brave. <laughs> if you guys are, I respect that. But I really yeah. wouldn't. He has given us zero reason to bet against him. So, yeah, I have absolute faith that he's going to be okay and Avatar will be okay no matter what. Uh, From Edward Douglas, has this year's Best Picture winner already been seen or is there a chance that something we haven't seen might take the title this year? Well, there's like three things that haven't been seen. So, you know, the the window of what that is is closing. But sure, it's possible. I mean, the only two movies I think... Honestly, like, I don't think anything is beating Fableman's right now other than and I say this like not wishful thinking, but I still think that there is a narrative on passion alone for everything everywhere all at once. Uh, But outside of that, of the ones that we haven't seen, the only two that I think could stand a chance are She Said and Babylon. Yeah, maybe, but I don't really think so. Uh, Edwin Aras, which movie do you think will will receive the most nominations next year? I mean, I think we're all saying Babylon right now. Uh, yeah, Babylon or Avatar. Yeah, I'd say Babylon. Yeah, the thing that's going to trip up Avatar is that it's not going to get any acting nominations. Yeah, true. Uh, oh, Josh, here's an interesting question. Uh, since you just saw it this past week, Alfie Parsons, I've noticed that there's a divide between Brits and Americans on See How They Run. Americans are going crazy for it, whereas us Brits find it to be just be perfectly adequate. Why do you think this is? Uh, I I don't know. I, I I just sort of feel like that movie just in general has a reception of is just fine. I don't really feel like anybody's like saying it's amazing or terrible. Um, so I don't really know where that divide would be coming from. Do you think that's something to do with just Americans familiarity with like the whodunit genre in general? I mean, maybe. Um, I also know that, you know, you got Sam Rockwell playing British and maybe that there's some resistance to that, too, of an American playing a, a British role. Mm, maybe. I still think the movie's a fun time and everybody should definitely check it out. Yeah. As I said at the beginning, it, it's a fun movie. It, it's just a little slight, but you'll have a good time with it. S2S movie reviews. Who is helped the most by the Golden Globes returning and will Tom Cruise ask for his Golden Globes back? <laughs> uh, I mean, oh, my God. Could you imagine? It's for this reason. It's for that reason alone. I, I think him getting nominated at the Globes will be like the funniest thing ever. And if he's not nominated, still the funniest thing ever, because, <laughs> you know, that if he's not nominated, it is because of that. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, they're going to try really hard not to be petty this year. I mean, people have talked about, oh, is there going to be weirdness with Brendan Fraser? They're going to pretend like that doesn't exist. And they're going to, you know, show plenty of support to Brendan Fraser, I'm sure. Well, hold on a minute. Just just from a (laughs) hold your horses there, Will. What if they don't? Uh, 
like imagine a world where he does not get the gold golden globe nomination then i, I mean i can't fathom them doing that that would be very <laughs> Just, stupid yeah of them. that that, is, I, that would never happen all right I, I, I just <laughs> that they have every crisis PR counselor in Hollywood and DC working for them. There is a zero percent chance they're stupid enough to do that right now. I mean, especially given... of that, just the fact that he is so strong in the race like that alone means they. Will yeah, they love him. predicting the winners, too. Yeah. I mean, come on. No, no, no I, I agree. I agree. There's just a part of me that does wonder still like so, so what, what I'm getting at is this is the whale still. uh such a surefire thing or is it really Kristen Stewart and Spencer this year where she gets like these uh like th- there are some shocking misses along the way that just throw us for a loop yeah but didn't she still get nominated at the Globes yes at the Globes she did she didn't get BAFTA or SAG yeah like I, I just feel like no matter what even in the old days the Globes if you were a strong enough contender they'll do it for you like remember when Gary Oldman had that long history of, you know, shit talking the Golden Globes, and that's the reason they didn't nominate him. But once he became the frontrunner for Darkest Hour, they put all that aside and gave him the award. True. But like, when when there is a narrative, it doesn't matter what the history is, they will nominate you. The, the bigger question is how Fraser's going to feel about it. That, to me, is more of the question mark. That is the thing I would also be very curious, because can you imagine if he wins, gets up there, has an opportunity to give a speech? Like, what does he say? Yeah. <laughs> Ditto of Tom Cruise if Top Gun wins Best Picture. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. As a producer on the film, he has to get up on that stage. It, yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise is going to be another one that's interesting because if he were to sign off on the Golden Globes and to say, like, yeah, okay, you can allow this to happen and I'm okay with it, that I feel like that'll just open up the floodgates for everybody else to be also okay with it. Right, I agree. It, like, everybody will say, well, if Tom Cruise is doing it, well, then again, maybe that's not true because how many people did convert to Scientology because of Tom Cruise? But anyway, <laughs> I will say uh, as a final note about the Golden Globes, I'm pouring one out for our live tweet reactions uh, to last year's yeah. show. I wish we could have done that again. Oh, that was so fun last year. That was a fun time. Nadia, did you did you ever listen to that show? No, I haven't. Oh, you should. It was great. Oh, we all got drinks. We hopped on the show and we did a live like as the as the winners were being announced over the course of like, what was it, like two hours, an hour and a half. Right. Yeah, we were just having the main show and then we'll be like, oh, blank, just one best, whatever. <laughs> like, oh, It fun. was so much fun. Yeah. So I will miss that this year. Yes, there's a particular moment with a Will Smith's win that I think will live in infamy on the site now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. And then final question for this week comes from Isaiah Washington in honor of Avatar's re-release. One has got to go. Sci-fi films. The choices are Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Arrival, Star Wars A New Hope, The Matrix. Oh, fuck my life. <laughs> God. So I, I think I think it, as much as I love Arrival, it has to be... <laughs> arrival no because yes no (laughs) the others were just so groundbreaking and such sea changes for sci-fi rivals an incredible movie but like star wars the matrix and terminator 2 changed cinema i know that they changed cinema i get that i don't 
I do not have the same attachment or even just general enjoyment that others do for the Star Wars franchise. So I am going to kick out. No, you're not. I am going to kick out Star Wars New Hope. No, you're not. What the fuck? I'm resigning that. Like, are you, no, you're not. <laughs> Listen, I... I think if I think if this was Empire Strikes Back, I would feel a little bit differently because I think that's a far better movie than A New Hope. I understand how much it changed, you know, pop culture and also to the industry. Uh, but I would argue that Jaws started that first uh, a few years prior. And I think without the release of Star Wars, um, I think we're looking at a, in my opinion, slightly better industry that is not ruled by blockbusters. I'm yeah, I mean, with you, true. Matt, to be honest, because <laughs> I am also not that attached to Star Wars. I do think about like, yes, there's all the technological advantages or advances that we had. But boy, the industry really did kind of change for the worse because of that movie and has learned all the wrong lessons from it. So I am kind of tempted to say that I'm also tempted to say Terminator 2, which <gasps> stop I, it. I like Terminator 2 a lot, <laughs> but I I think it is not as good as the first movie. To, to be Sarah honest. Connor though, Josh. Joshua. I, I understand. I understand. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm just saying now that. Now I know it why is... you cry. <laughs> Come on. Do you not get choked up when that? How is that? Like you're not crying at that moment? Again, I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but I do think the first movie is better, and most of the Terminator sequels have not been as good as the first movie. So I, I'm just saying that that is what I'm considering. But I do think at the end of the day, I am actually going to say Star Wars can go. Hasta la vista, baby. Nadia. Yeah. Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> That's <laughs> from the first movie, though. Okay. <laughs> I'm really tempted to say Terminator 2. Oh Don't my you dare. God, no. Don't you dare. I'm about just to write a piece of Life's Grave. Just by default, because I, I haven't, it's been so long since I've seen it. I haven't seen it in a while. So, uh, I don't know. Nadia, just say Arrival. Do it. Oh, Arrival is so much fresh in my memory, and it's just so good. And the first Terminator is better. And I don't know. <laughs> I... I mean, at, at least at least we can all say this, that none of us are picking the Matrix. No. No. I'm yeah. like straight, like low key, even though I'm kind of siding with Arrival, I'm just fl- flat out refusing to answer this question. This is my genre. <laughs> these are my ba- these are my babies yeah, of the genre, especially Terminator 2 and Matrix and Star Wars. Like those are my, literally those are like my three favorite characters of all times are from those installments. So I refuse to answer them. They're all freaking great. And, um, no. <laughs> did Isaiah Washington pick this again? Did you do this just to hurt us? Like, did Isaiah Washington know that I was going to be on the podcast today? <laughs> no. <laughs> top three characters, top three movies. No way. They're all staying. All right, then. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it here for episode 312 of the Next Best Picture podcast. Nadia Dalamante, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Nad Reviews and on Instagram at Earth to Films. Will Mavity? You can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. <laughs> you know, uh, that's just my support for the greatest movie ever made. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. Get down! There's a bomb in there! <laughs> that's a different movie, isn't it? Totally. Get to the chopper! <laughs> we all just start doing Arnold Schwarzenegger quotes to close out the podcast here. Yeah, Lauren, can you exclusively do the Batman and Robin for yours? <laughs> um, Everybody chill. What killed the dinosaurs?
The Ice Age! Hey, put that cookie down now. <laughs> it's not a tumor. <laughs> <laughs> no, my favorite is when he was at the Golden Globes and he said, this is Avatar. <laughs> No, I think my favorite one from him at the Globes was what he said. Instead of Babel, he says Babel. <laughs> oh, my God. Woo. Who's next here? Josh Parham, where can I find you on here? <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And Lauren LaMagna. You can find me on the Twitter at Lauren Lamango. You could watch Terminator 2 on HBO Max. You can watch The Matrix Saga on HBO Max. And you can watch... Arrival on Amazon Prime Video and Star Wars on Disney Plus. Amazing. Thank you. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 312 of the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us, including our two throwback reviews for October, which will be for In Bruges and for the 1930 Best Picture winner, All Quiet on the Western Front. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Close up. Oh my god. Yeah, was- <laughs> I, my my stomach started to hurt. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> I can't that question still it hurts me. <laughs> In physical pain. How can I go back to homework now? <laughs> All right. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.